Welcome to the Real Wolf Record Club. My name is Joe. I'm your host of the Real Wolf Record Club, the media juggernaut currently sweeping the radio waves by pairing talented guests with some of the greatest albums of all time for a can't-miss conversation. That's that's two-thirds true, I think. Uh, you can figure out which two-thirds, hopefully. Uh, have we got a great episode for you today. We are talking about a soul classic, a live album classic by one of the great soul pop, soul pop crossover acts of all time, Sam Cooke. And his 1963 or 1985 classic live album, depending on how you look at it, live at the Harlem Square Club. We're talking about that album with our friend Eric Foss from Secret Stash Records. Secret Stash Records is an independent record label specializing in vintage rare grooves from around the world, both in reissues of long-lost music, but also in their own titles and releases. We'll also check in during the episode with our own Put It On A Playlist correspondent Ben to hear what he's got in store for us before finally giving this album live at the Harlem Square Club by Sam Cooke our patented rating of bury it, borrow it, buy it, or buy it again. But we're also going to spend some time in this episode discussing more broadly live music and the power of live music. And, and if that phrase, the power of live music, isn't uh, scratching an itch or hitting something somewhere for a lot of you right now. I don't know what planet you're living on because we're all missing live music. And if you take nothing else from this album, whether it's the the heat, the background noise, the sing-alongs, the gaffes, the, the rasp in Sam Cooke's voice, you take away that live music can and should be an intense experience wherever it is you're listening from. So I personally can't wait to dive into that with our panel and our guest. A reminder to join us in the conversation about this album and all our albums and all our episodes at realwolfrecordclub.com where you can find links to episodes, merchandise, news, and updates and links to the guests you hear from the show. Follow us on Twitter at RealWolfRC and on Instagram at RealWolfRecordClub. So now let's turn to our art artist. Well, I should say our artist, our album, but our artist in particular, because this album obviously is nothing without it being from Sam Cooke, who, who, I don't know, I think his nickname was the King of Soul, Mr. Soul. Uh, he's guy's a legend. Guy's a legend. I, I actually come to this uh, knowing quite a few of Sam's albums. Have always thought very, very highly of him. He only only Otis Redding competed in my admiration. Uh, in terms of how much I admire them as singers with with Sam Cooke. He started his solo career at about 1957 in Chicago. He went on to release 30 songs in the Billboard Top 40 charts, started his own record label, and, and uh, was a major invisible part of the civil rights campaign. I, I mentioned before that he's called a crossover star in, in the sense that he gained prominence recording mostly gospel songs and in fact released some early tracks under the alias of Dale Cooke, to avoid alienating some of his gospel fans. His his friendship with Cassius Clay, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X has been portrayed in play and film in the movie One Night in Miami. And an interesting side note about that, there's a little Easter egg and go dig out. Uh, the comedian Paul Mooney once played him in a film. Paul Mooney playing Sam Cooke. That I need to go check out. Uh, as far as the album itself, it was recorded at the now-defunct Harlem Square Club in Miami, which was in a part... Um, at the time, it was a vibrant area of Miami known as the o Overton area, Little Broadway it was called, and, and as unfortunately is all too common in in uh, communities where people of color live, a highway was built and spliced right through the neighborhood and essentially uh, tore it apart, and, it, and it's now, now long gone. 
The album was recorded in 1963 but shelved until 1965 because at that time record executives felt it was too raw and gritty of a performance for Sam's gospel and climbed flans. But when it was released in 1985, it quickly became an album that many consider to be the greatest live album ever recorded. So before we dig in and before we talk to Eric about this album, I just want to check in with everybody uh, and kind of see what was the first live show we've been to? We're all of a certain age. We're all from a certain demographic, fortunate enough and blessed enough to be able to attend live shows. I know what a couple of the answers are here. I'm going to turn to you, Hannah, and I'm going to ask you, what was your very first live show? Tell us the details. When I was in eighth grade, I went with a friend and her family to Summerfest in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Chumbawamba was playing on a side stage (laughs) and we were so excited (laughs) to see this band um this was just like a big deal to us and at the time like i was a 14 year old dork like i didn't really know what was going on you know i knew there were two hits that were on the radio whoa 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 whoa. they had two hits I think, yeah, I think they did have two. There was another song. <laughs> there was another one. Uh, well, It was right. not as big of a hit, but I do think there was there was a second known song. Um, something I reprised. I remember being familiar with it anyways. <laughs> um, but I just remember being super excited to see like that song from the radio, those two songs from there that I knew live. Oh my gosh. But then after those were played, it was kind of like, I get it. All right. I find that fascinating <laughs> that Chumbawamba would play Tub Thumping early in the set. That feels more like a closer for them, um, but maybe not. I want to turn to Eric, our Eric Foster, I guess. Eric, um, I remember going to early shows um, and remember feeling, even at a certain age, like I am attending, it sounds really lame, but I am attending real life. Like real life is happening now. Now that I'm seeing a band, and when Hannah says, you know, Chumbawamba, that's funny. And but that 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 was a big band with a big song for a very short time. But you feel like this is real life. Um, I don't know if that was a similar experience you've had or not. But what was your what was your first live show that you attended? Yeah, I was pretty young. Um, I was trying to fit, seven or eight, I think. Uh, and my parents took me to see Tower of Power at the zoo. So I would say, uh, oh, come on, man! I knew yeah, it was going to be something different. cool and like deep. I was like, God, yeah, that's awesome. no, it, it was very different. And like so young that it wasn't like what you're talking about. Like, oh, this is like grown-up stuff, and this is the real world. It was just like I don't know. I was there with my mom, and she always has this memory of me, like, like, mom, I'll go dance with you. You want if you want? We're out in the aisle dancing, and like, yeah, it was it was cool. So yeah, my my very first show was Tower of Power at the zoo. And they still come to the zoo like mm-hmm. every year, you know what wow. I mean? Very often. So if you're listening and you're not from the Minnesota area and you don't know the Minnesota Zoo has a uh, actually pretty well-regarded concert series. They've had quite a few and it's a small little venue. I don't know what it was. However many years ago that was, but it's not a huge venue, but they get some very big and talented kind of niche acts to come through there. So I'll just tell you, mine was at the, uh, the, the Edge Fest at Somerset. That was a yeah. local KEGE Edge Fest. It was a radio station, and I saw a lineup that included. If you were to look this up, you would be instantly transported to 1997. Um, and the main acts that were there were Iggy Pop and Beck. And I'd love to say I was super jazzed to see them. 
I remember being very excited about seeing Matchbox 20 because they had just released <laughs> their first and mainly out al- big album. So um, that's my deep dark secret. Ryan, Ben, your deep dark secret on your first live show. My first was a little bit later than everyone else's so far, and it's a late bloomer. Age. Yeah, I, I went to Warp Tour in uh, oh, two thousand two yeah. in uh, Fargo, North Dakota. Um, <laughs> it was it was awesome. I mean, I I was there with friends. We had just graduated high school, and it blows my mind with how many concerts I've been to that it that it took me that long to go to my first show. But that that was my first show. And I probably saw Warp Tour that year, dude. Oh, it, it was oh, yeah. amazing. I was, yeah. uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's a concert experience that'll ever be top for me. Cause even just talking about it now, I, I, yeah, it was great. I was hanging out at cool guys, houses at, that went to college, um, had alcohol, <laughs> went and st- stood at the very front on the rail for some shows. And what's funny is I saw real big fish there, which is a ska band. Uh, they still tour today for anyone who listens to them. But I still go to their shows when they're in town and there's live music. I go to the Real Big Fish shows. Real Big I, Fish I, is one of the best shows I've ever seen in my y- life. Yeah. Bar you know, Do senior was- year of high school, senior year of high school, uh, someone came up to me in the hallway and said, dude, Real Big Fish is playing in Duluth tonight. And I was grabbed a friend of mine. I'm like, we got to go. So we didn't have any tickets or anything. And it was the night of like before homecoming they would do like a bonfire and a school spirit thing we're like screw that dude we're going to see real big fish so we left straight from school drove to duluth without tickets you ever see that movie detroit rock city where they're all trying to get into the kiss concert none of us had tickets and we split up and spent like a couple hours trying to track down tickets and we all got tickets except for one dude oh and then uh we were behind the club trying to figure out what to do started chatting up this dude who was in the opening act he was out back having a cigarette and he wound up putting the last guy on the guest list. We got in. It was like the funnest <laughs> night of my life. Like, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I love that. Totally agree. Doing some leg kicking to, to real big fish songs, you know. Uh, it's just it's just fun. And I know no one can see this at home, but I've got my my Warp Tour 2002. Oh, oh yeah. I, uh, I, I can't part with it. It's it's it's, it's part of me. It's That's part great. of who I am. So we've I mean so we've got Tower of Power which has a little bit of cachet. We've got Chumbawamba and Matchbox 20, which squarely age us. And then we've got Real Big Fish, still touring, Warp Tour. Ben, where is your first live experience? First live experience, the tour of brotherly love. And in order of appearance, Space Hog, Oasis, and the Black Crows. This is May 19th, 2001, at the Excel Energy Center. And as Ryan said, you know, probably in in retrospect, a, a late bloomer to concerts, I suppose. But uh, we we lived a, a fair ways away from any kind of metropolitan area, so it was, it was a pretty significant drive to get somewhere. And uh, this is shortly after I think I turned maybe seventeen or something like that. Two thousand one um, strikes me as late for that lineup, dude. Yeah, <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was late for that lineup. And uh, it, it, it was right after the Black Crows had released an album called Lions, which is terrible. <laughs> Maybe one good song. I do still like the Black Crows, though. I do. Oh, I do. Sure, I've, seen yeah. them, I, I've seen them again. I saw them at the Minnesota State Fair. Uh, but to me, on that concert, the, the big surprise was uh, Space Hog. 
they they really they they hit it hard. They that's were, a, actually a well regarded '90s buzz rock album that's kind of having a little bit yeah. of a resurgence. That's mm. yeah, Space Hog. Wow. And as as you would have expected, Oasis was terrible. Ooh. Sure. Yeah. Terrible. Liam and Noel. They stood up there and they didn't move. They just stood at their microphone. They played their songs. They turned around, walked away, said nothing to the crowd. Yeah. No interaction. <laughs> played their songs, got out of there, collected it's, their checks. It's really too bad they're such assholes because when they're on, they're on. Like to this day, uh, mm-hmm. what's the story? Morning Glory. Just that. That's a. That's all oh. time. The it's song so Champagne Supernova has the best guitar solo of any song I can think of, and I'm putting a lot of bands behind that because that's wow. you're right. They are talented yeah. dudes. Yeah, it's cool. Assholes though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not, yeah, not just... good in concert. Wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. see them again. Huh. All right, so we've covered a lot of ground, and we betrayed a lot of our early musical allegiances uh, to to some of the early shows. So I want to turn now, before or as we dig into kind of as your gathering is going to be a theme with our discussion of the album "Live at the Harlem Square Club" by Sam Cooke. It's the the power and experience of live music. It's the the how it how it captures you, how it pulls you in, what it means. What it doesn't mean, uh, it you know, and I said what I mean. It doesn't mean that it's um, you love a band, hate a band. It's just there's something different about a live show, even with one that maybe they're not as as good as the studio album, or maybe they're better than it. It's the the power of live music. It does something to us, and that's going to be a big theme. So with that, Eric Foss is our guest this week, this episode of the Real Wolf Record Club. And Eric is the owner of Secret Stash Records, an independent record label, pulling out some of the the great long-lost, and Eric will correct me, I'm sure, uh, but long-lost long blues and soul, funk, jazz, R&B, gospel records from not just, not just the U.S., but around the world. Uh, the phrase, if you, if you go to their website, uh, Secret Stash Records, you can find, they use the phrase, rare grooves. <laughs> which is actually something we've talked a little bit about. Um, rare grooves as well as music that is used in film, TV, and media place uh, placements. So I'd like to welcome Eric Foss to the Real Wolf Record Club. Eric, thank you for being with us on this episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a good time. Now, Eric, I want to I wanna start by asking you uh, how you got or how, how Secret Stash Records became a thing. Uh, we've described a little bit about it, but but what what is it and how did it get started? Yeah, I I actually have a background in the industry. At, at the time, was this maybe 2007? I was um, working for other labels. I kind of consulting a number of labels around the country. And I had been working with specifically a bunch of black gospel labels, which was really fun, but it's like a very specific niche in the industry that kind of exists on like the periphery of the industry. And I, I just really tired, like working for other people. Like it, it was, it was just sort of the same as someone starting any other business in, in that it was like, Oh, I've been doing this a long time and I'm kind of tired of, man, I really hate to say it. I'm kind of tired of watching other people like screw this shit up. <laughs> so I think I can do it better. And I think I can do it uh, in a way that I want to do it because you know, the record industry has just gotten more and more difficult every year for the last like 25 years. What do you mean by that? Well, first, the problem was um, 
what happened with big box retailers, right? So you have like the Best Buys and Walmarts start selling. And then all of a sudden they start selling more CDs than everyone else. Then they start selling CDs as a loss leader. And all of a sudden there's no profit margins left. And it's just getting harder and harder for independent uh, independent labels to get picked up in these shops and to make any profit. Then you have piracy, which gives way quickly, given what? Piracy turns into download legal downloads, which was a boom for a while. And then that got just totally cannibalized by streaming. You know what I mean? So there's just been like this nonstop avalanche of crap for the independent record industry. What a lot of these indie labels were doing at the time was like budget product. Like, okay, we can at least convince such and such retailer, whether it's Walmart or Circuit City was a big account for some of the retailers I worked for for a while. We can convince them to take this type of budget product. Like we'll gather up all the gospel tracks we can, spend no money remastering them, no, no effort on liner notes and put like 30 tracks on a CD for $5 or something. And it's just like, you're participating in the devaluing of music, which I hate. Like I hate, I hate, hate, hate. So I think that led to like, well, how can I do this differently? And we were kind of right at like the, the front end of sort of the, the vinyl reissue uh, trend. Like I, I don't, we obviously couldn't say we're like the first to get there because there are several really good labels who were doing it before us. But we, I'll put it this way, we were way ahead of the major labels. So like when we started doing vinyl reissues, it was like this new exciting thing. And you could take this super rare, like, oh, here's a collection of funk music from Peru you've never heard of. You need this in your record store. Like, Shit, yeah, I need this. This is great. If I put it, curious, if I put it in the bin, curious customers will buy it. Well, you do that for a few years and then all of a sudden the majors pick up on it. And now instead of competing against nothing, you're competing against the entire Stacks catalog for $12 on LP. I remember the day that I knew like it was getting really hard was when Blue Note started. I went into the Electric Fetus and they had piles, piles of Blue Note reissues for $9.99. And I'm like, all right, I guess we're getting <laughs> squeezed out of this too. So we're not really pressing a lot of records these days. But yeah, I came to it from within the industry. But it, it, within all that, I mean, there's obviously you talked about kind of the the arc from where music was to where it is today and how it's consumed and how it's purchased and how it's collected. Uh, there, there, Obviously, there had to be an eye that you had towards something is getting lost. Something's lost in all this because Secret Stash... I wouldn't even call it a niche. I would to call it to call the music that you guys put out or have discovered and unearthed a niche would be to ignore the idea that it's you know funk and soul and R and B is the the underpinnings of so much popular music. So what was it you were searching for with Secret Stash? Well, I just think I've always, um, I've just always loved history. Like we were talking before we were rolling, like the house I live in was built in the 1870s. Like I just have always loved old shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like the idea of, uh, you know, kicking over a bunch of, turning over a bunch of stones until you find something that someone else hasn't found before 
was just immediately appealing to me. I, I don't know what like the catalyst for it was uh, outside of just like, I had that period in my early twenties of just like consuming whatever music someone put in front of me, you know? And it was just like, just constantly like, like the first time you hear the Beatles, it's new to you, right? The first time you hear Miles Davis, it's new to you. And that same feeling can be um, sort of arrived at with all these weird rarities, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? So I just think I, I had this period early in, in my life and at really early in my career uh, where I just just consumed every bit of music that like possibly I crossed paths with. You know what I mean? I used to, when I was finishing up college, I had a thing where I, I would go to a record store every Saturday, and like a broke college kid. You know what I mean? Like I go to a record store every Saturday and buy at least five records. Listen to them all week, every boom, 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 boom. And like, I just think that excitement I got from discovery didn't matter if it was something that millions of other people had already discovered like the feeling is the same you know what i mean so i think um once you've gone through that the only thing left to do is to kind of keep digging deeper down you know what i mean it, it's very rare that someone like doesn't listen to much music and then becomes obsessed with like Nigerian high life music like you only get there as like an American listener of music you only get there after like exploring a whole bunch of music and then you start branching out you know mm -hmm. what I mean we're we're obviously talking about an album Sam Cooke's uh, live at the Harlem Square Club it, it was recorded and then shelled for two decades before it was released so it's kind of become a it was a lost record of art of sorts and and you know, 21 years later, the album comes out and it's, it's almost instantly a classic and you basically specialize in, in finding lost treasures kind of like that. What is, what is the process that secret stash goes through to find press and release, um, uh, those kind of lost things, you know, you referenced Nigerian music. What's that process like to finding those lost records? Yeah. We always describe it as like connecting dots and you just have to like, a dot could be, you buy the record and on the back of the jacket, it says like, oh, this guy's name shows up all over the place. He wrote most of the songs or produced by or copyright. And then you're like, how do I find him? Oh, I couldn't find him, but I found the guy who played drums on it. That's another dot. And he finally connected me to the dude that ran the band. Oh, he doesn't own it. They worked with some little label. And it's just like this series of just like dots on a page and you connect them until it like, creates a full picture i guess it is you are you actually connecting with with i don't want to say real life people but i i literally mean live people <laughs> some of the music that secret stash has been sure, like are people been, dead you mean yes i mean are you finding people that are still saying wow i can't believe you found this album or sure sure um you know i've been at it a little while now it's over 10 years um <laughs> and the music that piques my interest hasn't advanced in age with me. I'm still interested in that same period of music. So every year uh, I'm speaking to more and more people's kids. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
But uh, look, a perfect example is the, the Twin Cities Funk and Soul compilation we did. Um, I don't know if how many of you guys were kind of around on the scene and aware of it when it happened, but a lot of those guys were still around. A lot of those guys were still around. We conducted, I want to say it was over 60 interviews to make all the liner notes and everything for it. And when we put it out, we decided to do like a concert as a release party. And we had, I think it was, I want to say 25 musicians that were from the era and either featured on the record or played in bands, but maybe they weren't actually on the recording. Most of the people were on the record and we did like a big variety show with 25 living musicians from, from the scene. Uh, we flew, a bunch of people didn't live in state anymore. So we flew in people from Texas and California, Ohio. Um, so yeah, there's an example of like lots of people were still around. That project, by the way, took, I think two years of work before we were even able to like announce its release. Like it was that much time of tracking down rights and securing uh, securing rights and masters and everything. If, uh, that sounds like almost as much work as trying to find a pressed copy of that record because you yeah. can't find it right now. It's it's a very collectible record right now. Yeah, sure. we um, the licenses we did for it had like a uh, they were only for a, several years or whatever, and eventually we we stopped repressing it, which is one of my favorite things to do is to let things go out of print um, because now they're like. Um, I don't know. They're 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 in the ether as like some some of them are some of the really rare stuff are almost like myths, you know that not that record like you will find it, but but it, it it's a collectible thing, you know you know what I mean. Um, and that was part of the pitch with some of those like every record we put out we put out a limited edition version of it, so like that Twin Cities Funk and Soul, um. If you really want to go on a goose chase, find the purple vinyl with the limited edition 45. And I've seen them go for, I don't know, that record, maybe 150 bucks or something. So they're not nothing. Uh, but that's kind of part of the pitch. People would buy those limited editions and they a lot. some people would buy two of them and they just leave one sealed and set it aside, kind of mm. banking on the fact that like it, it'll just become more and more rare and valuable. Eric, I know you're the industry guy, but uh, we in the collector's industry would call that one to stock and one to rock. There you so, go. <laughs> what are some – that's interesting because it, it, I think there's this idea that it's the commodification of music as a product, the idea that we should produce something, find it, unearth it, and then put it into the consumption stream forever. But what, I, what, it's, what I'm hearing you say is we're pulling it out and preserving it the way you would preserve something in a museum or an artifact that – there's limited availability to it. You have to invest and kind of follow it. Um, what are some other, other, um, whether it be records or artists or things that Secret Stash have done toward that? Rather than finding something and putting it out and say, now everybody can find this album forever in perpetuity versus we're creating it. We're reviving this album. We're putting it back out. But it, it's not going to be a thing that you can just buy in any old Walmart record store. Yeah, I mean, that's that's our entire body of work, dude. Um, that's, that's everything, honestly. Um, 
over time, when we first started, it was actually a hundred percent vinyl only. So like we only put stuff on vinyl. We refused to put it on any digital platforms. It was like, if you want it, buy it for your turntable. That's it. Um, and, and, and eventually we got talked into doing CDs. Um, I had mixed feelings about it. A lot of people have, you know, kind of thanked me for that over the years. Uh, CD consumers are, I know some of the biggest music nuts I know are just like died in the wool CD consumers. And that's great and beautiful and awesome. It was fun just living in that one little niche. Um, I found for certain territories, for certain countries, it was more important to press CDs. We sold a lot of CDs in Japan and not a lot of wax, you know? Uh, but yeah, what you're describing is everything we put out, we did a limited version of, and then there's certain records where we'd only do like a one-off limited, like, hey, couple hundred of this or something. We did a really cool, small record store day pressing of some local music as sort of a precursor to the Twin Cities Funk and Soul compilation. And we made like 250 45s and they sold out in a day at record store at, at, uh, at the Fetus. We just put them at one store. It was pretty cool. Um, that's kind of the ultimate. And then we've done some like really collectible Northern Soul 45 reissues where we'll do like a hundred of them and they, they go for, you know, a pretty hefty price tag, but they're like a fraction of what finding an OG pressing would be. You know, it's like an OG pressing is 1500 bucks and you can get ours for like 60 or 70 bucks or whatever. Uh, and those are like hundred units done, no digital distribution. That's it. You know, so what what makes an album special or worth pressing or reissuing or even even to some degree tracking down the heirs of the original publisher? What what makes right. in your eye, what makes it worth doing? Well, I mean. There's there's a lot of facets to that, right? So there's obviously just like the creative aspect. Is, is it compelling artistically? And that's totally subjective. But that's what. Secret Stash is, I always describe it as like a, like a filter. And there's certain people that just like the taste of what comes out of our filter. So our first job is just to like, listen subjectively. Oh, is this, I guess, good in air quotes that you can't see on a podcast. Is this, is this good? Um, then you get into sort of like, does the market need it? And that's not that hard to determine these days. Are people blogging about it? Is it making its way onto um, certain podcast radio shows that, you know, cater to this market? It, uh, go on to Discogs. Are there people that say they, they, how many people want it? Literally, there's like a mark of like how many people say they want this in their collection. So it's not that hard to determine if there's a need for it in the market. Then you have to figure out has that need already been serviced by someone else legitimately or illegitimately? And when you run into bootlegs, it's heartbreaking. You find a family that owns this or an artist and it's like, oh yeah, we can put money in your pocket and properly reissue this, give you credit, money, the whole nine yards. Oh, turns out some asshole in the UK already pressed up a thousand copies. Or Germany. Or Germany, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's sort of like, like I said, there's a lot of facets to it, but it has to start with just like, 
is it any good? You are not. You are not just an industry executive or a music industry stiff. You're not just that. You're also a player. Uh, you had the chance to play with Sonny Knight and the Lakers. Tell me about that. When we did the Twin Cities Funk and Soul concert I was telling you about, Sonny was one of the featured singers in the concert. Um, and we had this great office in Uptown. It was in the basement of the Calhoun building, which is like this hundred year old, huge building. We had the whole basement and we'd run these rehearsals down there. And this one fucking dude just kept coming to the office. Like we'd have a rehearsal on a Monday and like Wednesday, all of a sudden the door would swing in and Sunday night would come down the stairs. Hey, what's up, man? And he, you know, just wanted to like hang out. So I got to be pretty good pals with him. Now, Sonny was at the time 67 years old. I was probably 30, 29. So there's a little bit of an age discrepancy. Vietnam vet, retired truck driver. And we just started like hanging out like kind of a lot, you know. And we did one of these shows and it went really well, really, really well. And we started getting offers to do more and more of these shows around town, kind of put that show on in different venues and for different things. And real quickly, I was like, okay, this is fun, but this show is like, it's gonna lose all its steam real quick here because we have, first of all, you can't get all those people together every time. Second of all, we have one show and that's it. We have the songs from this compilation. None of these guys are writing or recording new material. It's it's like a like a tribute show, you know what I mean? So the wheels are gonna fall off this thing pretty quickly. So then I had the idea like, well, we might as well see if anyone's down for writing and recording new music and doing a, like a new thing. And um, that basically led to me approaching Sonny and saying like, hey dude, I think I should make a whole new band for you and we should start making new music and, and try and really do this thing. Boom, I'm in, you know. We're talking about uh, Live at the Harlem Square Club by Sam Cooke, a live album. You had the opportunity to record a live album with Sonny Knight and Lakers. You were one of the Lakers. Uh, that was a 2015 live album, double LP, Do It Live. What was that like? So, yeah, Sonny Knight and the Lakers, Do It Live, was live mixed by John Miller directly to quarter-inch tape, which is how, like, you know, like those early James Brown live records are, they're quarter inch. It's just whatever you hear, that's what you get. And then we set up, if you were to see that show, there was a ton of microphones on stage because we didn't use any of the house gear. So the house guy running sound had all his equipment going through his digital console. And then we had all of our old ribbon microphones and stuff. If you, you ever see, um, old live videos where the singer has two microphones they're like taped together well that's usually because they're recording one and one's going to the house so if you look at pictures from this show you'll see sunny has two mics taped together you know it's obvious it's when you're recording a live set the band knows they're recording a live set the people that are showing up know that they're yeah. recording the live set yeah. um it, it's 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 intentional and i think part of the appeal of live albums is it feels almost spontaneous like you're capturing 
the 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 tiger tearing down the the pack animal you're capturing something live life as it's happening um but does there is there an extra oomph that goes into your playing on a live album when you know it's being recorded live i mean you're a drummer drummers are notoriously weird and flaky do you wear a special hat is there something you do (laughs) is there something that's special that goes in when you know hey we are recording this for posterity lots of jameson (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh lots of jameson the answer is yes there's something extra that goes into it but it's no different than any other great night of of playing you know there might be some folks who look at it the opposite way that like they take less risks because of the way we recorded it there's really no editing on that record and you can hear it there are like moments where like i remember going through the takes and be like man this take has the mojo Oh, right there's where I fucked up. But we're stuck with that and we're going to use it because everything else was so great, right? Um, so I think that there's probably a lot of you know, better musicians than myself that like would take the opposite approach and be like, well, I better be conservative so I don't mess up because it's going to be recorded and it needs to be perfect. Um, I we We took the... Uh, lots of Jameson and just let it rip approach. Uh, is, <laughs> is it better to be, I've heard it said both ways. Is it better to be tight, keep it tight, or to be loose, keep it loose when you're playing? What does that mean? I hear people say that, and I'm not a musician. That band was somehow both. <laughs> no, 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 I 100% Keep it tight, keep it loose. <laughs> like that band, like, it, go look up reviews of like, that band at that time and it's like oh yeah it's tight you know lightning in a bottle was what the star tribune was saying about it and it's like it here's the thing is that show would like go and go and go and a song would end and then there'd be like this big transition to the next song on to the next tune and you hear that you're like wow that's a tight band and then you get into these these grooves that happen and it gets a little loose and that's you know like this sam cook record is loose city man this record is so damn loose it is all over the place and i love every second of it this record was a huge influence in making this live record i came up with the idea for a live album and basically i think some someone approached me with the idea of like getting the band members for it was like for an article in a might have been like a european magazine getting the band members to sort of like pontificate on different live albums so it was really fun it turned into this project of like hey we're gonna make a live album let's actively have a discussion as a band about like our favorite live records and what it is that we want it want to create and want it to feel like and this came up probably as like number one with a bullet of just like the energy on this record is crazy, man. I wasn't even that, I wasn't even that big of a Sam Cooke fan until I heard this record. Mm. Yeah. It's uh, well, it's, it's an absolute force of nature. We'll, we'll get to that for sure. I want to ask you before, before we turn to one of our favorite segments, which is of course, Ched talk, Ched talk. Um, I want to ask you what's, what's next You've, you're, you've got kind of the dual thing going on. You're a player, you're a musician, you've been in some some great bands, you've played some great tours and live shows. You've also, you've kind of spearheaded this live music, or excuse me, um, 
Secret Stash Records. What's next for the industry music-wide, and what's next for Secret Stash? For me, um, you know, Sonny passed away a few years ago. That was really hard professionally, but personally as well, like kind of devastating for me. I mean, I went, I went with him to all his um, like chemo appointments and doctor's appointments and stuff. When he got sick, I eventually made the decision watching the sort of trajectory that was on. I made the decision to close our recording studio and office space because I was like, I don't think it doesn't seem like he's getting better. So he's probably not going to record more music. And I just like personally didn't have it in me to just like jump on to the next project and start recording something else. And that pressure was there, like very real, like very real from people we were collaborating with professionally. Like, oh, so you guys just getting a new singer? <laughs> no, we're not just getting a new <laughs> singer. Um, so I closed the studio and started working from home for a while. And last year I built the recording studio I'm talking to you uh, from now. We aren't really reissuing records so much these days. We haven't ruled it out entirely, but um, it's, it's copyright management, placing songs and film and TV and commercials, which is a great way to um, give a second life to some of this stuff. It's, it, it, it's pretty cool when you can call someone and be like, Hey, remember that, song of yours that I've been representing from 50 years ago. It's in this new ad campaign. You can show it to your family and oh, by the way, here's a check for, you know, some real money. Um, it's, it's a lot less sexy than reissuing records, but the God's honest truth is I've been a much, much happier person. Well, uh, obviously, you know, there's there's some truth to that, but I, I do think it's important. You know, Secret Stash Records is a great way, at least if you go to the website, you can see a lot of the stuff is going to be hard to find. But if you are a fan of the Real Wolf Record Club, you are a fan of The Hunt, you are a fan of unique stuff, you are a fan of music, you are a fan, I, I use Spotify, I use streaming, but you are a fan of vinyl. You are a fan of vinyl, and you are a fan, a fan of that 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 experience. And so I encourage everyone. I know you won't promote a, a secret stash here, uh, Eric. I will. Secret Stash <laughs> Records is a great spot to go. Um, you can find some really unique stuff. I'm going to promote that album, Do It Live, Sunny uh, Night and the Lakers. If you have not checked that out, it is on streaming services. It yeah, is yeah, worth sure. It feels live. It feels raw. It has that intensity um, that, that that's the Sam Cooke album, Live at the Harlem Square Club, that we're going to talk about momentarily has. So if you're looking for that uh, in, a, in a weird, strange world, it is a little piece of, of beauty to listen to. Do it live by Sunny Night and the Lakers. But now we're going to turn to our favorite time. It is Ched Talk. So Eric Foss of Secret Stash Records and Sunny Night and the Lakers, are you ready for Ched Talk? Yeah, bring it on. First question the first album you purchased in any medium oh what's the story morning glory on cd juicy lucy the burger or the song well shit come on man you can't ask me that uh no the burger come on there's no the song without the burger for those of you that don't know the juicy lucy is a staple cuisine of the twin cities 
the best room you've played? Ooh, wow, that's a good question, dude. We played some really cool theaters in Europe, but I don't think anything is ever as exciting as playing First Avenue if you're a local band. That's all you want, you know? Sonny has a star on First Avenue, by the way, on the side of First Avenue. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, we got to play some really beautiful um, venues, but First Ave is when you're, when you're from here, that's, that's all that matters, <laughs> you know? How many vinyl records do you own personally? Not nearly as many as I used to. I sold a lot. Um, at, honestly, after Sonny died, and the band stopped touring. I I, I was you know, kind of lost my job. So I, I started I started selling some. I think at the most I had like two thousand. Uh, it's much less than that now. And finally, our last question in Ched Talk: the album in your collection that you cannot live without. It might, dude. It might be live at Harlem Square. I I, I am absolutely head over heels for this record. Mm, and that has been Chad Talk. What a great segue, Eric Foss. <laughs> he finishes Ted Talk with live at the Harlem Square Club. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and dig into our album of the week, Live at the Harlem Square Club by Sam Cooke. You're listening to The Real Wolf Record Club. Too big, And it's out Welcome back to the Real Wolf Record Club. We're here talking with Eric Foss of Secret Stash Records, and we are about to dive in to the Live at the Harlem Square Club by the one, the only, Mr. Soul, Sam Cooke. If you were with us before the break, you heard Eric Foss, who played with the band Sunny Night and the Lakers, talk about the inspiration uh, that this album was for their creation of Do It Live, their own double LP from 2015. And, and so I want to turn in... Uh, obviously, we've been touching base a lot about live music, and and I, I want to open this up to the panel and and talk a little bit about um, some of the things we've touched on a little bit, uh, but that make live music and and therefore live albums so important. Um, Eric, I'll start with you. What is it about, whether it be as a player or an attendee, what is it about the live music experience that is so special for you? You in particular, you've made it you know, part of your life's work to be a musician, to go to shows, to perform, to find those recordings. What is it about the live music experience that is so special? I don't know what to say that doesn't sound like some cheesy canned answer. Oh, it's the energy. It is the energy, though, isn't it? But it is, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> you know? Uh, spontaneity, like I, I, I don't know, man. It, it's just that that hair standing on end feeling you get mm -hmm. when it's done right. But Ben, what is Ben? You have this. This is your wheelhouse. Ben brought this concept to us a long time ago, and he described the moment. There's actually a, a I don't know if it's a medical or a physiological term that some people have when. What is it, Ben? So there's actually a a, a word for that experience of getting chills. It's called frisson. F-R-I-S-S-O-N. And it is something that is not experienced by everyone. They did a, a, a study at um, USC, and this is from discovery.com, 
Uh, they did a study at USC and only about 50% of people will feel the shivers or a lump in their throat or goosebumps when they listen to music. So it, it, it's not it's not everyone. Huh. So I guess wow. from my pers- perspective, I feel thankful that that's an, uh, 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 <laughs> that dopamine release and mm. l- those feelings are something that I get often from music. So I consider myself one of the lucky 50%. To me, that's like... That's like the entry level. Like I'm going mm-hmm. to a show looking for not every show, but mm-hmm. I'm going to a lot of shows looking to experience that. But I mean, I can think of specific shows that have literally brought me to tears mm-hmm. like multiple times. You know what I mean? Um, I can't. Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine that like most people don't experience it that mm-hmm. way, but uh, I love I love are. hearing you say that because I I one thousand percent know what you mean, mm-hmm. but I can't wait for the day. And all you listeners, think of this: a new new you know we're gonna get through the world. We're gonna all go back to live shows again. And the next time you see some guy crying in the corner at a show, it's not because he's drunk. It's because he has experienced music viscerally that day. It, it's true, though. I mean, there's there there are there's moments that can just knock you flat, and and it is strange to think that some people just it bounces off them and they don't experience it. Part of the experience that I like at a concert is some of the people watching that you can do in the crowd too, because you see all these people that look like you and that don't look like you, but they all love the same thing. You're all there for the same reason. I I find that really interesting, a unique, compelling, chill-inducing, all of the things. Now, Hannah, you, uh, you, your answer, um, I think if we were to ask a moment or something that gave you chills for a favorite live show, it, it would, if I'm guessing, it would probably be a band that you wouldn't hold up as, this is a band I still listen to, but it was unique, um, y- unique in the Number sense Wamba. that- it was Chumbawamba. <laughs> but it, but it, it was Chumbawamba. It, it, it had to do with the, the mood of the crowd. It had to do with the people. It had to do with the energy. Tell us about that. I saw Passion Pit at First Ave. It must have been back around like 2010 or somewhere around there. Um, it was like kind of before like the word got out about them, you know, not to be... They're an indie person. synth like, pop band, basically, at the time. Before they were, like, super big, you know. Um, but the, I remember that show and, like, the air and, like, it was electric. Like, if you, like, stuck your hand out into the air, like, you could, like, feel, like, energy, like, fizzing by. Like, it was just such, to borrow a phrase from a friend of ours, it was such, like, a pumpy energetic show like like the room was gonna levitate or something I mean it was just an awesome such a fun experience um and then when they came back like a year or two later um they had just become more popular more people knew about them um and the show just felt flat and it wasn't the same but like there was like that live experience like that was just such like a palatable specific experience. And, you know, you're not going to experience that on an album or anything like that. And I, I never have experienced anything like that quite again. 
Yeah, you definitely don't experience that on their album. And I, I enjoyed <laughs> that album, but it is not the same live. Ryan, do you have a similar experience with, with the live show where you could just feel the energy in the room? Uh, because I think what we're getting at is obviously there is something about being in the same room as other human beings who are listening to other human beings create. Do you have an experience like that? Yeah, um, and this is one that took me by surprise. Uh I was a an usher at a local theater here in St. Paul at the Fitzgerald Theater for a God, few years. God, you have such an usher look. I love that. Yeah, I definitely do. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you could pick me out of a group of 100 people and, and find the usher guy. That's, that's the me. usher. <laughs> but this was a show that people had been just clamoring over for years because it was delayed and there was health issues with Morrissey. I'm not a, I'm not a Smith's like, nut or a Morrissey nut. But this was a show I was working. Um, but I knew it was one I wanted to be at. Yeah, so I'm, I'm here as, a, as, an, as an usher at the theater showing people their seats. But uh, I, I really can't even put into words the energy and just the experience that I had that just wow. completely caught me off guard. Because, I mean, Morrissey was playing at the Fitzgerald. That held a 1,000 people. Um, and that was being very generous with the capacity and Morrissey's a guy who could sell out Madison Square Garden. Um, he's got a, just a diehard um, legion of, of followers who are just obsessed. And that was one of the most, I don't know, like you could transport me there to that show in, in just a matter of seconds thinking about it because it was, it was that impactful on me as a person who had already seen um, – many 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 live shows up to that point eric what what's your moment what's your your moment or your band or your and you played all over but even as a fan is there a moment you can think of i think the first time i was probably just like floored like that euphoric feeling like you know that feeling of like being on drugs but at literally stone sober was uh daniel lenoir at the fine line probably 2000 six or seven something like that i think that was the first time live music it was daniel lenoir and tortoise opened for him um and that was always frustrating for me you know we were just talking about like um like that passion pit record like i was like okay i guess i'm a tortoise fan <laughs> no <laughs> uh tnt's really cool the other records most of that is like that show blew my mind clear out of the back of my head and the records are so flat i do love tnt tnt is an all-timer for me uh but i will also say it's very flat compared to that show um but i don't know if you guys are familiar with daniel lenoir he's kind of a weird little cult personality like it's somehow a big deal and super not a big deal at the same time but he's a record producer that did Emmylou Harris, Bob Dylan, Willie Nelson, a bunch of his own stuff. Uh, Ryan, you said you're a big Matthews Band fan. He wrote The Maker, which they cover a bunch. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, sure. that, that's his song. Uh, oh, cool. Daniel Lenoir is one of the coolest people making music today. Uh, and that show just absolutely floored me. He played pedal steel and played Hendrix on the pedal steel and stuff. And um 
Yeah, it was gorgeous. Now, it, it, this album, the live album, it's it's about, I don't know, 40 minutes or so it's long. It's super short, yeah. Super short. It's about 10, 10 tracks or so, if you count the first one, which is kind of an introduction. But, you know, you know, you, you're, you hit on that. There's, there's a um, looseness or a tightness, depending on how you look at it and who you ask. Um, but there's a there, there's something about this album that it's you can feel the energy, you can feel the heat, you can feel hear the raspiness in his voice. Um, I, I'm curious to know when you pick out, if you had to pick out your favorite song on this album, what what is your favorite bring it on song? Home. Let's bring it on home without there, hesitation. No, there anybody that says something otherwise, <laughs> I you know. Gauntlet Throne. <laughs> yeah, no, that's man. It's bring it on home. It, what is it about I, that? I, I, I have shed many tears listening to it. It it is, it cuts right through me. It it is like like a hot knife through butter, man. And, and that is a perfect example of like I now adore the studio version of that. I, it didn't like hit that hard for me the first hundred times I heard it. And then I heard this and I'm like, Oh, like that's what's going on inside of him when he's singing that. And, and now all of a sudden the studio record just hits twice as hard for me. And it's a very slick recording that that studio version. Uh, yeah. That whole long intro with the call and response with the band is like, the coolest thing ever and then they rip into it and it, it is when you listen to the studio recording it is just this delicate beautiful thing and you you wouldn't even know that if you heard this live version of it that they are just digging the fuck in uh like listen to the drums on that he's he's just just having at it man he's just having at it also uh there's no piano uh i don't think there's any piano on the live version and Cornell Dupree is in the band, the guitar player who's played with all the soul musicians back in the day. Yeah, Bill Withers, playing, Danny Hathaway. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's playing those uh, those piano lines on the guitar, and it's it's the coolest. But no, and then the big call and response at the end with this crowd shouting, "Yeah!" It's just that I, it it always shocked me that that's not the closer of the set, you know. And I don't know how chopped up that is. I, I, I read somewhere they did several sets that night so that they could, you know, chop out and take the best stuff. You know, I, I don't know if that record is the, if, if the way it was released is the actual set order or not, but it's always shocked me that that's not the closer. Like, well, if you look up though, to your point, uh, if you look up, you can find ticket stubs and ads for that show. And they played several sets. I mean, and, and, we, I think we always think of the 60s as the early 60s, a little more tame, and there's not quite the raucousness that we got into in the late 60s and 70s. And so, therefore, they were going to play at 6 p.m. and be – no, 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 no. They went on stage at like 11 p.m., and then they had a 1 a.m. set, and then they played till 4 a.m. I mean, it, it they kind of rolled through it. So it is a little chopped up, I think, uh, to your point for sure. Uh, Hannah, Ryan, what are what are your favorite tracks on this? You have to pick one. That's the rule. You have to pick one. It's hard to pick one. I mean, it's kind of like, do you want to party or do you want to swoon? I kind of kept going back and forth and hemming and hawing about like, well, which one do we really like the best? I don't know. And uh, because I have to pick something, I'm sorry, Eric, but <laughs> I, I chose 
having a party. Oh, it's so good. That song literally makes me want to party. Yes. Crap open like a bottle of Coke, turn the radio on, and like party with all my friends. You're so wholesome. Bottle of Coke. I love it. <laughs> That's what he mentions no, in the it's, song. It's in the tune. And also, yeah. Sam Cooke requests his own, he requests the DJ plays his own song in that song. I love it. I love it. It's a baller move. <laughs> no, it, it, that's exact. Oh, it's so awesome. Yes, uh, but it's so great. You're you're exactly right, Hannah. Because I, I one of the things I wanted to pull out about you know when we talk about one of the things we do on the record club is we always talk about our favorite song. We try to pull out maybe some things we don't like as much or favorite lyric. And and a, and a live show, live set, lyrics are a fluid thing. They may be sung the same way. They may be sung different. Um, you know, I don't know with a live set, live show, we talk a whole lot about our least favorite songs. So it's just always the live experience is so positive. It's so energizing. And you hit exact having a party, which is also my favorite choice here, is that last part of the song where they are singing and you can hear people singing back. And you can hear people moving in time with everything that's happening. And it... It, it makes me so happy and and not quite equal parts as sad because of what we're living through with the pandemic and you're not you're just not able to be with people you can be some ways but not in the way that we used to be and and we'll get there I do believe that but um, you hear this song and you think back to a time when you know Sam Cook lived another two years before he died under very strange and sad circumstances and you hear this time and you feel a happiness of togetherness. These people are packed into this hot, steamy club in Little Broadway, Miami, and you just feel it. You feel that moment of having a party. So I I, I agree with your opinion and, and endorse it. Uh, Ryan, Ben, your favorite song on this album? I won't get into my, my number one and number two. I'll just say my number one, but it was uh, Twisting the Night Away. Um, such a fun and upbeat song. Um, I particularly like how in the middle of the song, about a minute and 30 seconds in, maybe two minutes, not not positive what it is, but the song just kind of explodes with saxophone in the middle. Um, Pink Curtis, man. Yes, it, that is, I'm sorry, if you're having a bad day, if you're feeling like you just need to, need to take a nap, if you put that song on and you get to that part, if you're not just getting up on your feet and moving around, I, I think you're dead. I, I really do. <laughs> it is it is, it is, is such a fun part. And I like songs like this that are just fun to play loud and they're, they're fun to just blast. I like max volume on whatever I can put it on, turn it all the way up. And this is one of those songs where whether it's my headphones, my, my record player, in my car. If I had to pick out one moment besides a saxophone that I really like, it's when um, Sam kind of tells the crowd to get out their handkerchiefs. You can just kind of tell that the crowd is just in this frenzy to get out their handkerchiefs, which to me is just a really hard thing to even just comprehend. I'm getting out a handkerchief. But you can tell everyone's looking for it, and they're going crazy for it. And... Um, I mean, that's part of my bias towards live records where I just I just was like, wow, I wonder what it's like there. I can just kind of feel like these people in this frenzy to find their handkerchief and get it out because this, this guy on stage is telling them to. Ben, we've given you having a party, twisting the night away, and bring it on home. What do you got? I'm, I'm going to take something different than everybody else too. And Whoa. Eric, please, please don't, don't <laughs> hang me out uh, to dry here. But... Um, I really gravitated towards feel it, don't fight it. 
Um, and I think it's because I had literally never heard this album ever. I really probably couldn't have told you if something was Sam Cooke or not. If I heard it, I'd maybe say like, this is a soul singer. I maybe would have said like, my guess is it's Sam Cooke or somebody else. Um, so I, I wasn't super familiar with, with Sam Cooke getting into this album. But this to me was really like that first introduction. I know there's an intro song and you know there's the soul twist. But this is where I like got into the album and I was like, whoa, this it's is some unhinged, energy. right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's totally like, unhinged. This yeah. is stepping right into it. Yep. And the thing I love, and Eric, I'm certainly not <laughs> uh, gonna gonna claim to have anywhere near to as much skill as you or uh, any other drummers, but I did do some drumming back in my day in middle school. Um, but I I really loved and you you can I I, I want to hear your opinion on this. I love on, on this song how it, it feels like that drummer starts to kind of like rev up a little bit, like he's a little off time, and it, it's kind of like a couple false starts a little bit to get things rolling, but then yeah. like it just settles into this groove, and then it's just this high energy, like soul swing, like feel it, don't fight it, like let's get this thing started, and I just love that about this song, and I there's a lot of other really good moments on this album. But that to me, I'm I'm picking that song because it just it really I think sets the mood. There's another song that I'm pulling out from my uh, segment, putting on a playlist. I'm putting something else on a playlist, but this is this to me is my top song. That's a good one, Eric. Did you hear that too? Ben pointed out that part and feel it. You know the drummer. I, I off the top of my head, not specifically, but that's you're just describing that record right that that it's it is loose city man and like sometimes yeah. it takes a second and all of a sudden it settles in and it's like you don't really realize that it's settled in but all of a sudden it's settled in and all and and you're like okay here we are yeah that that's that whole record man that's that yeah whole and, and record. i it, i love that you talked about this loose city and i was like that's exactly like what i was like that's the concept that I had no way to express what it was <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. when I when I heard that because I was like, it feels, um, the way way to describe it is like maybe the sh the the kind of the shuffling and that like hum before a show starts. Sure. Where everybody's kind of like getting into their spot and like waiting to sit down and like figure out where they're gonna be. Like that's what it felt like to me with the band members. Like everybody's kind of like getting their stuff going and like. You know they're they're getting yeah. their shoulders loose, and then like, man, they hit it, and then it just yeah. goes, and then it just yeah. keeps going. And there's, I mean, it's a, it's a roller coaster, and, and and I say that in in a sense of not like highs and lows, but just like the experiences. It's it's fast, it's slow, it's it moves, and you can kind of move with it. And I I love that experience of yeah. listening to this mm -hmm. album. We've talked a lot tonight on the Real Wolf Record Club about live music. We've talked a ton about the power of live music, and Sam Cooke's album is a testament to that. This is this is an album that, at least, no matter how you rank it, it deserves your attention. It absolutely deserves your attention. Before we turn to our rating, we'll, we'll turn to our patented segment. We'll turn to our very own Put It On A Playlist correspondent. Ben, put it on a playlist for us. Joe, as you know, I love playlists. I love thinking about playlists. I love making playlists. 
I like naming playlists. And you talked earlier about serendipity, and we have a prime example of this right now. Because my put it on a playlist for this segment is called Do It Live. <laughs> Just like Sunday Night in the Lakers. And this is true before we knew f- this. Seriously? This, this is total serendipity, and this is because one of my favorite internet meme videos of all time is the Bill O'Reilly Inside Edition video. Search it up. Check it out. <laughs> it is absolutely worth your one minute and 38 seconds of time to see someone absolutely losing their mind. <laughs> and to Eric's point earlier, being tight and loose at the same time because that guy slayed it in his live take, in his live cut, but he was real loose all around it. <laughs> And and I think that this video is a perfect example of that. <laughs> oh, man. But do take the time, search it up, view it. It'll give you a good smile and a good laugh for the day. But on Do It Live, we are taking Eric Foss's favorite song, Bring It On Home To Me, Sam Cooke, live at the Harlem Square Club. That's our first track on Do It Live. And this is a playlist of live songs that are better than their studio recorded counterparts and that's that's the first track because it's one and eric you hit the nail on the head i think as far as my experience is concerned is it's just this raw emotion and it takes a song that is good on its own and it adds this additional layer to it that allows you to feel it don't fight it there you go feel it (laughs) But I've got, some, I've got other tracks on this playlist. We've got um, something that I, I really highly recommend people check out. It's, uh, and I combine this into two tracks. I've got my mojo working, part one and part two, from Muddy Waters at Newport 1960. Listen to that song and don't tap your foot. That's a challenge. Listen to that song and and watch your foot. It will automatically start tapping. And it's a great example of just something that you can just consume. You could drink it, the energy that that's in that song. A couple other ones we're going to put on there. Nutshell by Alice in Chains. We talked about that. Frishin. This is on the MTV Unplugged album. We talked about that frishin feeling. This is one that will get me with tears in my eyes. And it is so much better than the studio counterpart. We're also going to put, we have to put a Bob Marley song on here, No Woman, No Cry. I don't know that you can listen to the studio recorded version of No Woman, No Cry. The only one I ever hear is the live version, and that's off of the live exclamation point album. And then lastly, we're going to throw in another MTV Unplugged, just for examples here. It's going to be a full playlist but about a girl by Nirvana from the MTV Unplugged. That's your introduction to MTV Unplugged Nirvana and that experience, and it's a gem. Mm. And we reminder, listeners, one of the parts of the Real Wolf Record Club is everybody's in the club. Everybody's involved. We are, everybody's here. We all have our thoughts. We all have our feelings, but we all are bound by one thing, and that's we love music. So these playlists and more will be available at realwolfrecordclub.com, at least in terms of being able to find them on streaming services and, and the like, or if you, you have a CD and a burner program, like my buddies in high school who would 
charge you like $40 for a yes. CDR and your CDs and they'd say, I'll make you a disc. And then you would wear that disc out. You could make your own playlist, the old school style. But that was Put It On A Playlist here at The Real Wolf Record Club. And that brings us, that brings us to our closing segment of the night, which is the rating. And the way we rank our album is to bury it, borrow it, buy it or buy it again. One to stock, one to rock. It's that good that you're going to wear it out and you need another backup. That's the rating scale, and we give it to each album here on The Real Wolf Record Club. So I will start. I will start, and I will just tell you that I think um, part of what goes into my collector brain when I think about do I need this in my collection and how 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 much of it do I need goes into the idea of its its uh, relevance, its significance. Does it, it Does it speak to me in a way that I'm going to listen to it? And does it speak to me in a way that I'm going to need a backup? To me, I think this is a clear Buy It Again album. I think this is a super powerful album. Historically, I think Sam Cooke, I disagree with everything Eric said about his studio albums. They're freaking great. I want that on record. Eric Foss trash I Sam like Cooke studio albums. Um, no, it, it's it's great stuff. I love uh, everything Sam Cooke has done that I've heard, and I just think this is such a powerful album. But I don't know if that's a shared opinion. And reminder to our listeners, you can share and let us know. Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? What are your thoughts on this album? Panel, what do we think? I'm at a buy it again. I'm curious to know, our guest, Eric Foss, where are you at with this album? Bury it, borrow it, buy it, or buy it again. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you'll be surprised. It's a buy it again, for sure, for me. There's there's something specific about this type of record, having it in your collection is that it's, there's a utility to it, <laughs> okay? So like, there's like, uh, I have Ornette Coleman records and like, those are records for me to listen to by myself, in very certain situations by myself, because most people don't want to listen to that. This is like, anytime someone comes over, I will put this record on. Absolutely anytime. You know, Thanksgiving dinner, put it on. You know what I mean? Friends coming over for drinks, put it on. Like this, this, there's like a utility to this that it can be used and used and used. And some of my favorite records aren't that way. This is a buy it again. This is have one upstairs and downstairs ready to go on the turntable anytime. This is hands down. There, like I said, there's, there's a practicality to keeping this one around that you don't get with some other fantastic records. And Ryan, where do you place this album? Yeah, this is a buy it for me. Um, with some time after it marinates for a while, it very well may be a buy it again. But in this moment, it's a buy it. Um, I loved it. I, super cool just to not have really, I've never listened to this album, never listened to Sam Cooke. And all of a sudden, as part of the Real World Record Club, I'm listening to it, and I'm in love with it. I love live shows. It's to kind of meet the um, kind of general consensus on this album as being one of the the greater live shows of all time. I would, as a person who's never listened to it before, I loved it. I will hold wholeheartedly agree. It is fantastic. Some of the albums I like the most are the ones that take me the most by surprise, and this was one of them because I had really no expectations going into it. Um, but yeah, this is, I would totally agree with Eric here, like great utility album. I can put this on at home with friends by myself and, you know, any type of setting mood and really enjoy this album. Um, so it, absolutely great addition to my music collection and, um, I will definitely be buying this. Ryan, you, you're in the industry as a, as an usher. Uh, do you think they had ushers at this show? 
You know, it it didn't sound like it. This sounds <laughs> very they much like some a, uh, yeah, 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 fend for yourself type of show, which which is probably one of the elements I, that made it so great. I read that the cap of that room was 750 people, which I oh, don't know really? if it's true or not, but that's to me that's bigger than I envisioned it. Oh, I, for sure. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it, it sounds even smaller than that. I don't know how true it is or isn't. But uh, I found that interesting. I was like, yeah. but before this conversation, I'm like, man, I want to know how many people were there. And, wow. you know, I, I don't know how true that is. To me, I hear like a, a smaller room than that. Yeah, even. I was thinking yeah. one to 200. But uh, that would be that even makes me like it more if I hear it's that packed of a room. Yeah. Well, that's and amazing. I think that's another thing that adds to it is there's a lot of details about this album itself. Not a lot of details about the show, if that makes sense. It's kind of difficult sure. to find yeah. out how yeah. many people are there and what the club actually looked like. and sure. So that adds to the allure. Ben, where are you on this one? You know, Joe, this is where I'm going to make a little bit of a comment on why I love our patent pending rating system so much. Because I'm actually going to give this a borrow it. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to give it a borrow it because I want to seek this album out and I want to listen to it with somebody else. I want to be part of that experience with somebody, so I feel that that rawness, not by myself, but in Eric's uh, <laughs> in Eric's studio, listening to this thing blast on a nice sound system. I I probably should buy it, but I'm not going to because I want to cool. listen to it with cool. Ryan. I want to listen to it with Joe. I want to listen to Eric with Eric with Hannah. I want to I want to experience this album, and I and I want it to be something that I don't experience all the time, just like we do with live shows, right? And if I'm going to listen to recorded live music on an album, I'm going to do it with somebody else. So cool. you guys are going to have to buy it for me, cool. and I'm going to listen to it with you. <laughs> all right, Hannah, you get the last word. What is your ranking of this album, Sam Cooke, live at the Harlem Square Club? I would definitely buy it again. This is a really solid and fabulous album. Uh, the live experience is just really unforgettable. Um, and the love songs are fantastic. And the dance songs literally make you want to twist the night away. So, um, yeah, I, I'll keep on listening to this album gladly. And and that is exactly it. What a, what a great live album and, and obviously a great live show does to you it makes you want to dance it makes you want to move it makes you you feel that connection with human beings as ben talked about earlier strangers who all who all came together to come to the same place for the same reason that you may not know them you may never see them again but for that moment you are together in that room you are together with that experience and, and that's what i love about live albums especially live albums like the sam cook album we talked about today it's just a little bit of a time time piece a little bit of a snapshot of that live music experience that that many of us have been missing for for quite some time uh but live cook or live cook i call it live cook that's probably what it should be called sam cook live uh it's it's something else and and we we miss his genius every day and this album is a reminder why we want to thank our guest eric foss from secret stash records for being here make sure you check them out at secretstashrecords.com and follow us real wolf record club 
on Instagram or on Twitter at RealWolfRC, www.realwolfrecordclub.com, where you can get merch, information on the episodes, upcoming guests, and, and find other ways to be part of the club. This is the Real Wolf Record Club. As always, thanks for being part of the conversation. This has been the Real Wolf Record Club podcast. The Real Wolf Record Club is a production of Real Wolf Productions, LLC, a limited liability company. The show is produced today by Ben Head. Our panelists were Ryan McKinnis, Hannah Vantomi, and I'm your host, Joe Vantomi. Follow us and join the club on Instagram at Real Wolf Record Club. On Twitter at Real Wolf RC. Go to our website to find links to the episodes, upcoming news and information, as well as a link to buy merch from our very own Ward Sutton at www.realwolfrecordclub.com. Join us next episode when we discuss the influential 1984 album Let It Be by The Replacements. Uh,